Okay, so our speaker is Jack, Jack G from Cleveland. Jack, the floor is yours. Thanks, Louisa. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Jack. I'm an alcoholic and an addict in recovery. Um, I've been, uh, my sobriety date is March 22nd, 2019. Um, I would say that my recovery has been, you know, and especially staying sober has been definitely due to secular AA. Um, when I, I went to, I went to the traditional AA for a little while, um, but I was still drinking and using, and I just didn't know anything about, um, you know, secular agnostic free thinker recovery. I, I kind of thought it might be out there, but I, I didn't know anything about, um, AA in general in, in the fall of 2018, when I first, uh, start, started going to a little bit of meetings at the urging of my employer. Um, but ultimately in that following spring and March, um, when I really hit my bottom, I ended up going into rehab, uh, went to detox cause I was addicted to, well, not only was an, I wasn't, I an alcoholic, which was, you know, my first drug of choice. But I um, had also become heavily addicted to opiates uh, in the pill form. Um, you know, you can name them off Oxycontin, Percocet, Vicodin. Um, I really liked it when I could get my hands on some hydrocodone cough syrup. That was a good one. But I also drank during all that time. Whenever I got those, I'd like to mix them. Um, that, was, that was really my drug of choice. If I had one and not the other, um, I definitely felt like I was missing that high that I was looking for, uh, especially if all I could come source was alcohol, which was pretty easy. Um, you know, that tend to really put me in a state of frenzy to try and find somebody that I could have the pills to take at the same time. Uh, and during that time, uh, which was close to, I, I would say when I first started using opiates. Um, it was always recreational. I would say it was never because of an injury or surgery. That's not how it turned it on. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, when I was around 30, 31 years old, which was around 2001. Um, my, uh, my father, who had been getting them because he had had some knee issues, um, He's like, well, you're, you know, I, I had gotten a new position at the company I was at. I was working a lot of hours and he's like, he goes, man, you're, you're, you're working your ass off. He goes, you know, you want a couple of these pills to kind of chill out for the weekend and relax. And, uh, my brain was always such that I was, uh, more than willing to try stuff. Um, you know, I was never an anti-drug person, although I couldn't really do them because many of the jobs I held were, um, in, in the industrial capacity where, you know, drug use would, there was random drug testing and stuff, but I, I think I felt comfortable enough with the fact that they were pharmaceuticals. And I always had this scenario in my head that I would tell the human resource person exactly that, that. Oh, I had a sore back and my father gave me a couple. I didn't know I could get in trouble for him, you know, plead, plead ignorant, but down inside I knew, but, but that was different than the, um, you know, like using cocaine or marijuana, um, which marijuana was nothing I ever liked. I've tried it, uh, up until getting sober off and on. And, 
mostly I tried it when I was already drinking and I didn't know its effect. And then a few times I tried it when it was uh, on its own. And that's when I realized I absolutely don't like the high for marijuana. It's just something I don't enjoy at all. Um, so that's even in sobriety that that California sober is not tempting to me whatsoever um, to to go down that road. Um, yeah, so I started I started using the the opiates and then pretty quickly, I would say within a month's time, because um, I always love drinking, you know, definitely a, a, a weekend binge drinker at a minimum. Um, it was like, well, it says on the bottle, you shouldn't take these together, but let's try it. You know, I was always a let's try it person. And so it was like, a, a, and pretty quickly they, they went together and I've used this analogy quite a bit. So if you heard me say it, I apologize, but it really sums it up. Um, you know, I, I like jelly on bread and I like peanut butter on bread. So one's the alcohol, one's the, the opiates. They're fine on their own, but when you put them together and you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, that's awesome. You know, that's what really makes them good for me. And that's why I say that that's truly my drug of choice is that combination. Um, and a lot of days that's what keeps me sober because I know if I, if I were to drink, I, I think within seconds of alcohol hitting my stomach, I would immediately go into the, I got to find some pills, like somewhere, somehow I would be looking up people from my past. Um, I, I, one of the things I did in rehab was I, I uh, changed my phone number and I'm sitting there with my wife and like the counselor there went through and deleted all the people that were in there that I had sourced my pills from. And, uh, and, and I had been doing that for close to 20 years. So there was a lot of folks that came and went, they were generally, I would say the more of the elderly population, um, that were, uh, and financial, uh, issue, they were having financial issues so that they would sell some of their pills, honestly, to make their, make their rent, pay for their groceries. And they would take a few for themselves and then they would sell the rest or some of them. They just, they knew they didn't even really like take them. They would just have to take a couple before it was time for them to get a refill in case their doctors tested them. So those folks came and went for various reasons. Um, some of them, they just healed up enough that their doctors said, I'm not giving you in, any of them anymore. Um, and then certainly by 2019, the, uh, the vice started closing on how freely by then, actually probably a good five, five years before that on how freely doctors were prescribing them. So I was feeling that also because my, my sourcing was uh, going away, but I was still a full-blown addict. And yeah, there was times where maybe I would go a week where I couldn't get any. I would go through the physical withdrawals of it, which is absolutely miserable. I would start to feel better and my mind would go, hey, you got this out of your system. Why don't you just stick with not doing it anymore? But sure enough, I would get a text or I would notice the date and be like, Oh, Mrs. So-and-so usually gets hers about these days. Maybe I'll give her a call. And then sure enough, I would be right back on them. So although I wasn't taking them daily, I would if I could. Um, and I certainly was drinking daily um, at the end. The last few years, um, my, my routine was get up at 5, 5 a.m. to go to work. I had a uh, friend of mine that 
owned a, a bar not too far from where I live. And I would do some uh, repair works on his like beer coolers and walk-in coolers and such and his air conditioning system. So essentially I could drink for free there. They, they knew me as, as uh, Larry's buddy who fixed stuff. Don't ever charge him for a drink. Well, that also meant that he had an old gentleman that would come in and open the place up and do the cleaning at 5 a.m. So I would stop in to check on things and then I would pour myself off a few drinks and and that's kind of how I would start my day. And um, pretty quickly after that, if I didn't have any any pills to take, I was that alcohol hit my system was like, we got to find pills. Then I would be on the way to work going, OK, I'll, I'll check in with work. I, would, I had a meeting at 7 a.m. I would make that meeting and then pretty quickly I'd make some excuse why I had to go out to pick up some parts or materials. Um, I ran a maintenance department for a manufacturing facility, so I could come and go pretty much how I wanted. And I also had the ability to um, fund my my habits through uh, ways such as diverting materials and reselling them. So I did a lot of that. Um, and I also had mileage from going places that that my, that monthly mileage report where I would get reimbursed for was probably three times as much as what I was actually driving and, and doing. And of course, my wife never knew about any of this. Um, she didn't know how I crossed those lines of, you know, I would never steal from my employer or I would never borrow for like I had guys that worked under me and I would borrow money from them. And I know that's like ethically wrong as a supervisor. You don't borrow hundreds of dollars from the guys that work from you, especially I generally made more than them. You know, and it's a couple of them I knew that were pretty nice guys. One of them still a very good friend to this day. Um, and, and I would come up with some excuse on, hey, man, can you loan me 200 bucks? Always paid them back. But it was just I, I, I the, the addiction caused me to cross lines that I never thought were part of, um, you know, my moral makeup. Um, and I I said this in the past, too, that. I don't think I'm a shitty person, but the drugs and alcohol explains why I did shitty things. Um, because even, even now in sobriety, um, I realized that while I was in active addiction, I was still working on myself. I was, I didn't understand a lot of the, um, you know, understanding about acceptance or regret or, um, uh, resentment. But there was times in my 30s where I worked through a lot of that stuff, all while being addicted to drugs and alcohol. Um, so it, it, it was a, a journey that when I walked into the room, I kind of understood quite a bit what those things were about by, um, I guess, kind of learning uh, accidentally on my own. Like, oh, I recognize these things. And and I was trying to work on some of that stuff, even though I didn't really fully understand what they were doing to me. But um, it, it has helped me in sobriety that it wasn't completely foreign to think about, um, you know, again, re regrets and leaving things, you know, what's the saying, leaving things in the past, um, but not forgetting them, that kind of thing. I was already doing a lot of that when I when I went into rehab. Um you know, but I, I my story does does include uh, along along the ways with my father is he was very much a person that 
pushed me as his son that you should be you should be getting laid by the time you're 15 or 16 you should be drinking with your buddies you should be the uh, all-star on the baseball team you know and he was he was a steel worker typical cleveland sorry my dog is going to bark uh typical steel worker um mentality work hard play hard um and if you're getting fights that's cool you know that's that's what guys do um so i alcohol was not a problem when i started drinking at 15 and 16 i think in some ways it was not frowned upon uh he might have put up a show like oh you shouldn't be out drinking with your buddies but i think inside he was like oh thank good my goodness my son is doing those things that means he's turning into a man um and my mother really wasn't in the picture because uh, she had met my stepfather and I lived with her and they moved to Los Angeles. And I went to LA for one year, which was, uh, 1985 and 86. I lived with her, my stepdad. And I was just, I honestly was, believe it or not, homesick for Cleveland. Um, at that age, when she took me out there, I was starting to have relationships with females. I was starting to party. And when she kind of said, Hey, we're going to California, it, tore me out from being, you know, somebody who was coming into my own as an adolescent to being a new kid who didn't know anybody and was, uh, uh, you know, having to start all over with, with, I, within my mind, I felt were like, uh, targets of progression as a, as a kid I had met, Oh, I'm partying. I have a girlfriend. I'm, uh, uh, doing whatever, whatever that, that in my mind and now I'm in California where I don't know anybody. And I'm so I ultimately, I decided uh, that I told her I was moving back in with my father and I moved back to Cleveland and he was very much a hands-off person. He was a bar fly. Him and my stepmother would go to the corner bar. Um, Cleveland is a city and many of you to maybe live on East coast or there are still neighborhood bars and especially in the eighties and nineties, you could, uh, you would have houses and on the corner, there would be a couple little small, one would be like a little convenience store and across the street would be a neighborhood bar. So I grew up with those things in my neighborhood and my father going there to, he was part of, like, I knew I could find him in the bar. Uh, if I needed to go get a couple bucks, Hey, dad's in the bar. So Drinking and that lifestyle was um, certainly a part of my upbringing, and it and it was not something that um, I had to overcome a stigma to do. It was, it was definitely encouraged. Um, but and my drinking in my twenties was certainly binge drinking type. Um, I I did when I was in in my teenage years. It was. Uh, something that I still look on fondly. It was, it was when it was still fun. I was with, you know, my buddies. Um, I had become a kind of a punk rock skateboarder kid. I was, uh, which in the Cleveland area in the eighties, it's not like California or everybody rode a skateboard. You were pretty unique. So there was kind of a fellowship with that. You found out about some kid that lived on the other side of the city that had a ramp and you would go with your buddies and then skate. And then in the afternoons, you would score some score some mad dog or something else. And you'd sit around and drink. And that was very much a fellowship for me. Um, I look back at it now and I realize that uh, because I get the same feelings from AA fellowship 
as I got from from that uh, at that time in my life. Uh, I ended up joining the military. I dropped, but it just I wasn't I wasn't very prepared, and I would say some of it was the drinking, but it was more of um, the partying that I just didn't have time for school because I was either hungover. A couple of my closest buddies were not going to college, so it was hard to say, hey, I got to go study. Uh, and I didn't go away to school. I went to a college in Cleveland. I went to Cleveland State University, which is a commute, kind of a commuter school where you would take public transportation and you go to class. Well, it became hard to, in the middle of January when it's snowing to get your ass on a bus and go down to class. So I, I essentially flunked out. Um, and after about a year of uh, dating my wife, dropped out of college. Uh, we ended up getting married and I said, I need to do something um, that's an alternative to college. So I joined the Air Force uh, and I will say that was one of the best decisions I made. I did use it as my college. I got skilled to this day when many of you see me uh, logging in from work is a direct result of the job I had in the military, which was um, electrical power production. I, I took care of generators and power plants. And where I work now at a data center, we have a big power plant with generators. And and I often say I'm, I'm an industrial electrician at my core. And so it served me well. So I've made good decisions throughout my life. Um, but all along the way, a lot of those decisions were being driven on drinking, you know, Part of the reason I didn't join the Navy is I didn't want to be six months to sea without being able to have a drink. Well, the Air Force is, you know, you don't have to go anywhere. You know, you go to a base and you come back and forth. And and I knew it was more of a, a technology driven military where the Army and the Marines are uh, more go get your gun. I think I touched a weapon three times in my entire in the Air Force. You know, there wasn't. Um, plus I was in during the early nineties after the first Gulf war. So it was, it was fairly pretty much a peacetime. So there wasn't a lot going on there, but there was a lot of, um, I lived in Japan, you do your job and then on the weekends, you get as drunk as you possibly can. Um, and along the way, my wife was doing some of that with us. We were young, we were in our twenties. We were young people. Yeah. We were starting to have kids and, and that was coming along the way. And, and I look back at it now. There was a few times she's like, I can't drink where I'm pregnant. Could you also not drink? Like, show your solidarity with me and not drink. And I never could. As a matter of fact, I would look at her like she's nuts. Like, why should I not drink just because you can't? Um, so I, I, you know, now in sobriety, I look at, I realize those were signs that it has alcohol had a deeper hold on me. Um and I do believe in, in being predisposed to substances. Um, again, alcohol being the easiest one to come across uh, because it was encouraged um, to me also being willing to try stuff. Uh, one of the uh, things I've realized in sobriety is I look back at points. And, and when I was like seven or eight years old, there was an older kid down the street that had discovered that if you put a little gasoline in a bag and sniff on it. It makes you high. When he offered it to me, I didn't go, ew, no. I was like, yes, give me some. There was something about my brains that um, caused me to do that. And I apologize. I am sort of in a flight line for the airport here. So I don't know if the jet's making too much noise. Um, 
but the the um the also the incidents were my mother would take me to get some dental work done as a six-year-old and they at that time they gave little kids nitrous oxide they put a little mask on you and made you high as a fucking kite well i loved it and i remember asking her on the ride home if we could get some of that for at home to use um not you know obviously as a as a child like that i didn't realize the implications but now i i understand that my brain is something that um enjoys to alter itself for no other reason than it just likes to do it um and definitely if it feels good for a moment uh i will instantly want to do it a hundred times over uh, whether it's alcohol whether it's pills um now in sobriety i've discovered uh, uh some uh, exercising I, I i wear a fitbit so i i get uh driven by the, the personal pride on how many steps i get and that gives me a little thrill so of course i'm pushing myself and then telling people around me how many steps i got and they look at me like shut the fuck up you're annoying us with the, all your step talk <laughs> you know and it's not aa step it's it's walking steps um, or I picked recently started listening to audiobooks and I did that in March and I kind of knew before I ever did it, I would enjoy it. And I can't go without having a new, I just finished a book yesterday and I'm already like, okay, I got to start my next one because it gave me some joy and I wanted not that feeling to always to, to never be there. Um, so yeah, so so recovery. I I again I I didn't realize anything about AA what other than the initials when I first came into the rooms and I was still somewhat drinking and using and definitely towards the last uh couple months uh because I couldn't get my hands on pills, but I did since I had been more than willing to, you know, throw the risk of a drug test, random drug test at my work. Off to the side, I started picking up uh, and doing cocaine. You know, when I couldn't get pills, I would I would get start using coke and drinking on cocaine. Um, and you know, as a 40, 49 year old guy at forty eight, actually at that time, deciding to start using coke, it seems really. But I I wanted something other than just the alcohol. I needed something more than that. And I knew at least if, uh, you know, if I got a few drinks in me and that urge was, oh, come on, give me, I want some, I want something else to add to this booze. I knew I could get Coke pretty, pretty regularly. I had, you know, uh, a lot of people at the company I worked for at that time knew I was a buyer. They knew that if they got some pills, you could go get Jack, the maintenance manager and call him over to your machine and be like, Hey Jack, I got a couple of these. And I would be like, I'll be right back. I'm going to the ATM, you know? Um, and so that I think somebody said, Hey, you want to try some Coke one time? And me, okay. I can't get pills, but I got some Coke. Sure. Um, so I, I was living as, um, an addict and the people who didn't know I was doing these drugs and alcohol, which was my family and my closest friends, I think they just really thought I was just drinking too much. Um, I physically didn't look well. I was always tired, uh, which was really the effects of the opiates. Um, but they just, I, I would use the excuse, I'm working so many hours. Don't you understand how tired I am, how busy I am at work, how much I have going on? 
Um, that would be my, uh, don't you see this? So my, that would be my glass gaslighting to them that, um, I'm such a hard worker. I, I deserve the drink on the weekends. And little did they know I was starting, my drinking was starting each day at like, uh, five thirty, six o'clock in the morning. And I just, I couldn't bear to deal with people at work, uh, which really wasn't that much unless I had something flowing through my bloodstream. Um, and then it just got to be too much. I, I just, I knew I was underwater with drugs and addiction or drugs and alcohol probably for two years before I got sober. And looking back on it, it was certainly um, something that was uh, much more than a weekend, a weekend party thing for me for over 10 years, you know, maybe even 15 years. Um, where it had progressed that anytime uh, I could get the drugs, I was doing them and alcohol was there almost every day, uh, regardless of, of my acquiring, um, you know, pills. And I just hit the bottom. I was missing work. They were suspecting that I was drinking too much. Um, Cause again, they, they suggested I go to AA, um, they, they were thinking I was drinking at night and then it was drag coming over in the morning. They didn't really realize I was actually drinking in the morning before work. Um, and I had separated from my wife in the sense that we still lived in the same house, but I was sleeping in my, uh, my basement is a finished basement. I have a couch and a little bar down there and a TV and stuff. And I had somehow slowly over the, five years before getting sober migrated down to sleeping like the basement became like my bedroom. My wife slept in our bedroom and there wasn't like a blow up fight. It was just that it was easier for me to fall asleep down there saying I was watching TV to the point that that's just where I went to bed. And it, it was all because of, I was hiding how drunk and high I was or because in the middle of the night, I would be texting people to see if they had anything, responding to texts, um, going through withdrawals. So I was up, you know, if I didn't have anything, I was, I was in and out, up and down because you get like restless legs, you can't sit still. So if I'm going through withdrawals and I'm sick, I'm, you know, all of that I could do in the basement and hide it all from, from my family. But it just, it, it got to the point that it was too much. Um, for my kids, they were adults by this point, and I was essentially non-existent to them. I was just some dude that lived in the house with mom um, because of how how bad it had gotten. And I, I just made a decision to go see a therapist, and I went and saw him. And I that first day, I just, I don't know what was, if it was because it was like somebody that wasn't close to me, didn't know me. I just kind of spilled my guts as to everything I was doing. And I actually went there under the influence of alcohol and, and some, some opiate and probably some Coke too. And he realized it. And he's like, look, he goes, you need to go to detox. He goes, if you're serious about wanting to fix these issues, you're saying, he goes, it's because you're an addict. Everything that you're saying you want to fix is because you're an addict and an alcoholic. He goes, and you need to go to detox as soon as possible um, and then go into rehab. And I don't, and he goes, and you need to tell your wife everything. And I don't know if it's because I was still kind of high when I came back from the meeting with him 
or I just felt inspired by what he told me. But I stood there and I spilled my guts for 20 years of what I had been doing, uh, including how much my father and I, we were, our, our uh, father-son hobby was sourcing pills. We would find them. We would share them with each other. We would pool our money if we heard about somebody that had some. And this was, this went on for so many years. If we were going to go to go see uh, uh, an American football, American football game, like uh, here in Cleveland, we have the Browns. We were going to go down to the stadium and go to the game. We had to make sure we had pills. Me and him were going to go. We had to make sure we had pills. We would pregame by drinking before then. He was actually was not, he had gone away from being a bar person when he picked up the drug habit in the late nineties and he would just have a few drinks, but he was taking handfuls of, of Percocet and to the point that he would run out before his script. And I, when he ran out, it kind of meant I ran out. And so our relationship was such that we were um, both, we figured let's, uh, you know, let's work together on solving this problem of finding the drugs. <laughs> and that was our, our hobby. Uh, and since getting sober, I, I've probably seen him in person uh, maybe a half dozen times um, because I, it's very much sober people, sober places. He's still addicted. Um, we text occasionally about sports or how we're doing, but I just, I can't be around him because I can tell when he's under the influence um, and in some ways my brain goes, wouldn't it be fun to be feeling that way? Um, and my wife doesn't want me around him either because she, she knows that, um, uh, you know, what our history of what, what we did together. And he lives just a few minutes down the road, the one main road off of my house. I could drive there and be there in three minutes to his house. Um, yet we don't see each other because I know I, I, I can't be hanging around him because a thought would start in if I if I notice you know I notice his his go-to moves when he's taking them you know when he slips one in his mouth like I recognize it and I can't be around him um if he's doing that because my mind will go you know maybe I should just give him an elbow and say give me one and I know he would give me one I know he would because you know when you're an addict you want company, you want somebody to be doing the same. It validates, for me, it validated that what I was doing wasn't so wrong. Um, yeah, so I got out of rehab and I went to, I found Secular AA here in Cleveland, Westside Agnostics, and I went to their in-person meeting and I immediately knew that this type of AA recovery would work for me. Um, and as quickly as they allowed me, I started doing service work. Um, I also would go to the Cleveland Free Thinkers meeting, which is at noon. And this was all in person. The pandemic hit. And right literally as I was getting my one year, one year mark of sobriety, uh, the pandemic hit. And we went to Zoom. And wow, that that was such a different game changer for my recovery. Um, I still do Zoom. Uh, like many of you, I've said many of you see me, it's usually when I'm at work. Uh, it just happens to be that the rewards of sobriety is that when I'm not at work, I'm doing things with my family again. Uh, yesterday, my oldest daughter, uh, 
she came and she's engaged to be married and she doesn't live too far from me. And she picked me up and we went to a, uh, not too far from our house is a new revolving sushi place where the plates come by and you just grab it. And so, you know, five years ago when I was in active addiction, we wouldn't be doing that stuff. We wouldn't be uh, doing those things together. She wouldn't necessarily be mad at me or, or angry at me. She just wouldn't really want to be around me, you know, n- knowing that I would probably be drunk or I would just be weird, you know, just not, not right in the head um, and, and her not maybe being able to explain why it is. Um, so, yeah, so I don't do so many Zooms anymore. I do hit some in-person meetings. <clears throat> I've actually gone to a couple of traditional meetings in the last month. On that, just because it's proximity to my house, and it's a kind of a big Alano club, and the meetings will have fifty or sixty people. So even though they're traditional, I can kind of sit in there and not say much, and just kind of gets me out of the house and gets gives me some place to go, especially when I'm feeling like um, uh, that that the urge of like wanting to go out to a bar feeling like God, it'd be nice to go out to a bar. So instead. I've been going to AA in-person AA meetings um, and they, and they work for me. So yeah, recovery has been awesome. I, I love the, I think about the promises a lot. Could I recite them per number? No, but um, you know, the financial, uh, the one about finance has left, even though a lot of the things I did was to fund my drug habit was kept separate from my family. I was doing, uh, activities on the criminal side, separate. Um, and my wife even asked, she goes, how were you affording to do this? And I'm like, she goes, and I think she actually was, you know what? I don't want to know. She goes, it makes me feel like you're such a fucking asshole. And she goes, and I know that's not you, but when you tell me how you, the things you would do to get the money for it, she goes, I just, I, I don't want to hear them. Um, and sometimes even when I make dark humor jokes about, uh, addiction and recovery. Um, she's like, I don't find those funny. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of, I know people who haven't been, uh, in the recovery community or been addicts and alcoholics don't always think those kind of jokes are funny, <laughs> but I tend to do it. And I think a lot of other people do it. And and some of that is part of my recovery is, is the humor I was worried was going to leave me has, has, uh, has definitely stuck around and, and, um, even grown to be, I guess, more sophisticated in some ways. Um, so yeah. So, anyways, I've gone on way too long. Uh, must be the nice, comfortable morning here. And um, so, thank you so much for asking me, Louisa. I always love Tusnua. It's one of my favorite groups. <clears throat> I always tell people you can have more than home one home group. Um, you know, I have my in-person home group. I have uh, the, the an all night place group that I go to at one in the morning local time when I'm on that shift, and I have Tusnua that I go to, you know, on, when I'm on another shift, and they all serve different purposes in my recovery because they are because that's the wonderful thing about Zoom is you can find different meetings that have um, different flavors, I guess, for you, and they and they solve different uh, issues in my mind for me to go to those, those, you know, have that change up those meetings. It's, it's really worked well for me. So thanks again. I appreciate everybody listening and it's good to see all of your faces again, and you'll see more of me next week. Appreciate it. Thanks.